0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. When the Lord of heaven came down to earth, he didn't plan a great big heavenly parade for himself. He didn't descend in a stream of light with angels blasting their trumpets and banging on their drums. Rather, he came in quite quietly, snuck into our world in the form of a servant setting aside his infinite majesty and power, the Lord of the universe became man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The one through whom the galaxies were made, through whom all the diversity of life has come, became himself a little embryo. True God, yet true embryo. True God, yet true fetus. True God, yet true newborn. He came in the form of little Gideon Bell, who was baptized earlier this morning. God came into the form of you and me and all men at our smallest and weakest. In ancient times, the pagan world sacrificed their young ones to appease bloodthirsty gods. Having become so much more advanced, we now today in our country sacrifice our young ones to ideals. We sacrifice our young to the God of human choice, to the God of ideal genetic health, to the God of sexual freedom and financial stability. The world despises weakness and exploits it, it is merciless to the least, but our Lord is not at all like this. He became a little one himself, in order that he might also be Lord of the little ones, taking their flesh into himself, taking on the lowliest of human forms, so that he might also bear their sin and be their Savior. In sin their mothers conceived them, and each little one bears Adam's curse, and that cursed wage that is death. But the Lord humbled himself to save these little ones who are precious in his sight. To undo that ancient curse. To grant them eternal life. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He is Lord of the little and Lord of the lowly. And so he has chosen the little and foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise and the weak and lowly things of the world, to put to shame the mighty. Nothing could be more true of baptism, the foolishness of a handful of water, and the weakness of the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's nothing, says the world just an empty and meaningless rite. Indeed, the weakness and foolishness of baptism is so great, it's even despised by Christians. It's just a symbol, they say, just an outward sign of an inward change. And where, pray tell, is that in Scripture? Where do the Scriptures teach us that baptism is a powerless sign? God's strength is made perfect in weak things the weak things that he has chosen. His wisdom is made manifest in the foolish things he has chosen. And he has chosen baptism, water and word, pure weakness and foolishness to the human eye to be his very means of grace, a lavish washing away of sin. For the scriptures do indeed say, baptism now saves you. They do indeed teach that baptism is a washing away of sin. They do indeed inform us of things that our eyes simply cannot see. In baptism, we have been united with Jesus in his death. We have been buried with him, the scriptures say. And we have been united with Jesus in his resurrection, that we may also be raised in our bodies on the last day and walk in newness of life even now. Though our sinful eyes are blind to it and we cannot see, the word of God plainly says that in holy baptism, little Gideon, along with you and me and all the baptized of every time and place, has been clothed in Christ. Though our eyes cannot yet see it, we are those of whom revelation speaks. Our robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The stains of your sins, great and small, have been blotted out by the very blood of God. The whole of your life, every mistake, every fall, every shameful sin, has been completely covered. In holy baptism you have put on Christ, the scriptures say. And though your eyes cannot see it, even now you are shining with the glory of Christ. So when God sees you, he doesn't see what you see. He sees none of your sins. He sees none of your inadequacies. He sees none of your ugliness. For the moment you repent, the moment you confess your sins to God, the moment you plead guilty to him is the very moment that all your sins, inadequacies and ugliness disappear from his sight. The permanent record of your sins is blotted out. It has become permanently illegible in the blood of Christ. Your iniquities and mine from the greatest to the least have become lost in the divine forgetfulness of the one who remembers our sins no more. When God sees you, he sees his own beloved child He looks at you the way you looked at your newborn children. He looks at you the way Gideon's parents look at him. He also sees you clothed in Christ. He not only forgives you, but get this, he actually likes you. He loves you for who you are. He is proud of you. And he can see a future that you can't see, both in this life and in that which is to come. And when he does call you home, you will see for yourself that your God and Father is like that father of the prodigal son, arms open and running to you, a homecoming for you. Our Father, Jesus teaches us to pray because that's who he is. And our Father has chosen the weak and foolish things to put to shame the wise. So Jesus teaches weakness and foolishness in our gospel today. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The world scoffs at such weakness, as do many Christians. But not those who grasp that the weakness of God is stronger than the power of sin. After all, what happens when you hate those who hate you, when you curse those who curse you, The cycle of evil and hatred continues and worsens. If you want to see it on a level of country, between country and people, between people, look to the Middle East. The cycle of evil and hatred continues and increases. Someone strikes you on the cheek and you retaliate, and then he retaliates, and then you, until eventually you both have spiraled and descended into hell, even if it's only a hell on earth. All relationships, even marriages, can become like that. A hell on earth. And families, too. Because no one will break the cycle of sin. Its power is simply too great. Our Lord Jesus gives us another way to break the power of sin with the weakness of love and with the foolishness of forgiveness, neither of which is a feeling, both of which are choices. But let it also be said that our Lord does not desire that we simply become pacifists or doormats. He was and is neither. When he tells us to turn the other cheek, he isn't talking about domestic violence, for example. When he tells us to allow not only our cloak but also our tunic to be taken, He's not saying we must allow ourselves to be jumped and robbed. And likewise, when he says, judge not, and you will not be judged, condemn, and you will not be condemned, he isn't forbidding judges from doing their job, or parents from judging what's good for their children, or otherwise destroying civil order. Nor is he forbidding the church to condemn false teachers, excommunicate the impenitent, or pronounce those who bring a false gospel anathema. You can find positive examples of all these things in the scriptures. We can be sure too that Jesus is not forbidding us from calling a sin, sin. Even if those sins are popular in the world or believed by some to be virtues. Likewise, Jesus is not forbidding us from calling sinners, sinners. In fact, he commissions his church to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. How can there be any forgiveness if there is no sin? And no sin because thou shalt not judge. In fact, those words, thou shalt not judge, are about the only words of Jesus that the world cares for. And that because they completely misinterpret them. As the scriptures everywhere teach, we must judge, but only as Jesus judges. We must condemn, but only as Jesus condemns. and We must forgive precisely in the way that he forgives. We are to do good to those who are ungrateful and evil precisely because that is what our God and Father does and has done for us. Our enemies are not just any. They are those who hate Christ And they hate us only because they hate Christ. When they would strip you of your cloak because you belong to Christ, give them your tunic also. When they would strike you on the cheek because you belong to Christ, turn the other cheek also. In so doing, you are not meeting evil with evil, nor even evil with justice. but Rather, you are meeting evil with mercy the only power greater than the power of evil is the the weakness of mercy. And the only wisdom wiser than sin is the foolishness of forgiveness. Christ isn't calling us to be pacifists. But ironically, he is calling us precisely to fight. To fight against the principalities and powers of darkness with these very weapons of weakness and foolishness that he gives. For so Christ himself has conquered evil for us. On the cross he gave both cloak and tunic and was stripped for us. His mouth was struck and he turned his other cheek. Indeed, his whole body was beaten and scourged for us for those who abused him and crucified him he prayed father forgive them for a world that cursed him and nailed him to a tree he blessed us and cleansed us with his blood to those who hated him he gave and still gives good things that all might be saved and to all of us while we were still his enemies He loved us and called us friends. And he laid down his life and gave himself into our evil hands that what we meant for evil, he would use for our greatest good. So by his own death, he has given us life. And by our greatest sin, he has won forgiveness for us all. That the powers of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature would be undone by the weakness and foolishness of his cross. And so it is. Your sins are forgiven. The blood and water that flow from Jesus' pierced side have washed you clean in holy baptism. Of course, there weren't any angels blowing their trumpets or banging their drums. At least not that we could hear. There wasn't any shower of heavenly light or unapproachable glory, at least not that we could see. But nonetheless, God has visited you in a little water and a little word, in a little baptism so easily despised. In his own weak and foolish way, God has come to you. He has written his name on you. He has claimed you as his own. The day is coming when you will see that his weakness is stronger than any strength, and you will know that his foolishness was wiser than all the wisdom in the world. On that day when you, with nothing but baptized and forgiven sinners, are gathered around his throne. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.